Hello, listeners. Welcome to the interview segment of this week's podcast. This week, we have special guest, Dr. Andrew. Dr. Andrew is a doctor located in a Brooklyn hospital, and it was a really important interview, especially with everything COVID-related spiking and the shutdowns ramping back up. We hope you get some clarity from the, from the info that Dr. Andrew provides, and don't forget to let us know what you think. That being said, here's our interview with Dr. Andrew. All right, welcome to the show. One of my oldest and closest friends, Dr. Andrew. Andrew and I have been friends since high school, so I know him well, but that's not the reason we are having him on the show today. The reason we're having him on the show today is because he happens to be an emergency room doctor in New York City who has been on the front lines of fighting this health crisis essentially since it arrived on our shores. So we wanted to have him on to talk a little bit about his personal experience with fighting COVID-19. We want him to potentially dispel some myths and or misinformation for us. And then, since our last episode was about all things healthcare, we wanted to get into some of his opinions on that topic as well. Uh, We may also talk a little bit about politics in relation to the COVID-19 crisis. So without further ado, Dr. Andrew, welcome to the show, man. Hey, guys. How are you doing? We're good. We're good. Thanks for having me. Happy to have you here. And and thank you for all the work you've been doing, uh, all the hard work and putting yourself in harm's way. I know that that's appreciated by everyone who you touch. So thank thank you. you. So, yeah, first off, like Jay said, thank you for doing what you've been doing to combat this terrible disease. You know, being in New York, which was the epicenter uh, up until like last week, you know, of the COVID crisis, we're sure you've been through a lot. You've seen a lot over the last few months. Uh, First of all, how are you and how do you deal with the emotional drain of it all just to get into a heavy question right off the bat? He does have a drink in his hand. He does. (laughs) Besides drinking, how do you do it? For one, that's, that's the first part. It's what we train to do for the most part. You know, one, one of the aspects of my life that I appreciated relative to what everyone else was going through is, first of all, I had a job. Second of all, I had the opportunity to more or less go about business as usual and that I was seeing my coworkers every day, people that I've worked with for years, people that I was, you know, I was very friendly with. So it, it created a sense of normalcy in my department has a very strong sense of unity when it comes to professional, but also interpersonal relationships. So they, from day one, they made a real strong effort to reach out to everyone, anyone who's having trouble, um, creating um, networks for for people to engage if they needed to, to take advantage of, um, you know, mental health resources if they needed to. Um, So that was really reassuring. And, And also, my family was obviously very helpful uh, and, and very supportive, and I, and it was it was actually a nice opportunity to spend you know despite the fact that we were not seeing anybody or hang you know doing anything, I ended up seeing more people than I usually do via video chat and whatnot. So talking to my parents every day, talking to extended family who I hadn't seen in a while, and it was nice to have that support group. My kids, you know, obviously didn't know what was going on for the most part until it really became you know schools closing and things like that. Um, so that just sort of helped distance myself from it. I've been saying that we are, cause we're, our kids are around the same age. You know, I've been saying that the one silver lining to this is just how much more time we've both gotten to spend with them. You know, it happens to also be the one age of life where you want more attention from your parents instead of less. So we, we have been, both my wife and I were basically our businesses were shut down right after this. So, so you know, we've had a lot more time. And, and we have friends who have teenagers who are going through just a hell of a lot worse of a time than my, my kids have actually done pretty well. I don't think they really are old enough yet to understand what's going on, you know, just the gravity of it. So, yeah, that is. Yeah, that is I mean, my thought is, you know, the, the, whatever, whatever deep-seated psychological damage has been done, you know, by the time they're 18, college will be a thing of the past so we'll be able to put all that money towards therapy um (laughs) but uh yeah i would say my my kids uh you know three and six they they've become much closer and and better at being sort of playmates and and cohabitants to each other than they were before which has been a nice thing to see so tell us a little bit about how the whole thing started at your hospital was it sort of all at once or were you prepared for it walk us through sort of the day-to-day leading up to when things were just getting crazy? Uh, I would say February was sort of like a, a very sort of heady time where we kind of knew it was going to come 
and everybody was walking on, walking on eggshells. But I worked for two different hospitals at any at any given moment. But the hospitals were sort of ramping up their response and trying to sort of anticipate what we would need, what sort of resources, everything like that. It required sort of you know the the this huge bureaucratic machine to be as nimble as possible, which is tough in any situation. And so things changed kind of on a day-to-day basis. And then I remember sort of hearing about the first person who had a patient who, you know, came in with something completely separate. And we got to the point where the rule was every anybody who was going to get admitted would get tested. And, the, and at this point, the testing was pretty, it took a long time. It was, it was not a, uh, you know, one or two hour turnaround time like it is now it would take like a, you know 24 hours or so uh because we were sending it out to a lab and everything like that we started finding out the patients who came in with totally unrelated seemingly unrelated stuff came back covid positive so that's how the first couple of my coworkers became exposed and then we had a policy regarding you know exposure where you'd have to take two weeks uh, uh, off for quarantine and, and then come back symptom free but then we basically realized that within a couple of weeks' time, you know, it would just decimate our, our workforce. So that got kind of rejiggered. And then it just came. One week it was, you know, I saw one, I saw a couple, you know, we're, these people are coming back positive. And then it was just like everybody coming in with respiratory symptoms and just, and respiratory symptoms, unlike anything I've really seen. I've, I've been working here at this hospital for 10 years. and. I, you know, I haven't seen anything like it. I've worked with people who, uh, I work with people who have been there for 30 years, 40 years. They worked through, you know, the AIDS epidemic. So they saw all of the major sort of immunocompromised related respiratory stuff. And they said, this is, I mean, this is like that times, times a million. For, for the first couple of weeks, we said, you know, we didn't have the, the possibility to test everyone at that point. So we said, if you were symptomatic, if you had a fever, if you had some cough or whatever, assume you have it, go home for two weeks, quarantine. If it gets worse, come back. So that worked, you know, for most of the young people and, and, um, but our, our population in general, I mean, there's, there's a, a wide, uh, array of, of underlying health issues, but a lot of it is related to diabetes and hypertension, like it is pretty much everywhere else. People would come in with very poor oxygen saturation, not really demonstrating any symptoms of it, but to the point where they'd walk a couple feet, they'd get short of breath, they'd have to get back in bed. So this is when people had to, had to start coming in. Uh, and then initially we were concerned about possibly aerosolizing the vi- uh, virus. So we didn't want to give people things like um, nebulizer treatments that they would that you know, we would give albuterol with or anything like that. There were certain uh, respiratory therapies that are very helpful, but they also aerosolize. So when we were trying to, when we were under the impression that we could maybe keep the place relatively sterile or, or COVID free, we were trying to minimize these therapies. And then it got to the point where we just, everybody had it. So everybody ended up getting BiPAP and CPAP. The bad ones, you know, obviously were intubated. There was a period that I was that I was away, but I think right before I left, we had been we had used something like I don't know sixty out of the sixty five ventilators that we had in the hospital. You know, all the units were reassigned as COVID units. To just interject for a second, was it mostly old people? Was it mostly overweight people? You know, we've heard a lot of things about that. It was mostly old people, um, but with that comes you know underlying health problems and obesity. Um, so yeah, it was by and large, it was, it was old people. And when you say old, what age, like people over 60? I would say, yeah, I mean, even in the fifties, I would, I would start to worry about people. Um, but then, you know, we had some people, I had one kid who was 22 who had, who was obese. I had to, I had to intubate him. There were some kids, you know, young people that, you know, had severe enough symptoms that they had to be admitted. And then we were learning new things every day. So our initial impression was that this is a respiratory disease, this is like a flu, things like that. But then it turns out that I wouldn't necessarily call it so much a respiratory illness as it is just a hyperinflammatory illness, right? So that means that the lungs are getting affected because it's, it's, it, there's, you have this inflammatory response, your white blood cells come in, you just get pus kind of everywhere in the, in the lungs. But you also get inflammation of the blood vessels, which means you get increased clotting, which means that people are coming in with strokes, 
and blood clots in their lungs and blood clots everywhere, heart attacks, things like that. So during our surge, everything fell under the umbrella of COVID. And then after the end of April, I guess, or the, the third or fourth week of April, it started tapering off. And the only people who were coming in were COVID people, but everyone else just stopped coming. You know, all of the, I think it had a lot, had a lot to do with the fact that like, there weren't, the kids weren't playing outside, so they weren't hurting themselves. They weren't playing with each other, so they weren't getting colds and stuff like that. People who would usually come in for like three months of knee pain were wisely avoiding it. So we had a period where it was just sort of trail, trailing off, but we were just pretty much 100% COVID. And then by, I don't know, May, June, I mean, it was a lot of it was crickets. People were, were doing a relatively good job of social distancing, and I think that made a huge difference. And we were very grateful for that. But at a certain point, we actually had to start reminding people that we were open. Um, we, we set up a telemedicine uh, option for people as needed if they if they had some issue that could be dealt with uh, over the phone. So and, and as of right now, we're starting to get sort of back to a normal state. But obviously, right now we're we're our testing is much better. We're testing everyone. Um, we are the turnaround time is much faster. There was a period in. I guess May or June, where we started seeing uh, an uptick in the in the um, pediatric inflammatory illness. That was scary, and it it sort of it skewed my degree of concern just because I was I mean I was seeing it, and these kids were tremendously ill sometimes. But thankfully, it turned out to be a much smaller group than than the COVID group. And that stopped now at this point. You know, I for a while we were getting like one a day maybe once a week now. So thankfully, yeah, it's slowed down. We're going to go through some myths to dispel. But before we even get there, just something I thought of before, Jay, you asked your question. Um, I heard a theory the other day, because LA is now going, we're both in LA, and we're we're going through, I think, what you were going through, where like the hospitals are just being inundated all of a sudden. My neighbor is an oncologist. He was saying, he works at UCLA. He was saying all of a sudden, it's just crazy. There's a theory that sort of, New York got it first, and everyone that was going to die pretty much died. And that now we're seeing the tapering off, not necessarily because of all of the factors that went into, you know, the social distancing and all of that, but maybe it's just LA's time or every other city's time to go through that process. And anyone who's going to die in that city is going to die, and then we'll taper off again. Is that, do you think there's any weight to that? I guess that's one way of saying it. I mean, Technically, at any time, anyone who's going to die is going to die. So it's hard to to uh, to fit that into that sort of specific framework. It hits the at risk population. Sure. Yeah, that, first, I would right? say that's right. It's it's a it, it, there is a there is a population that is is and was very likely to get it and did. I don't know. New York is starting to feel almost uh, uncomfortably normal. I mean, I think by and large, people are still wearing masks, but people are outside, people are in playgrounds. I think um, the people who know that they're high risk are taking maybe extra precautions. Um, but I, I would say that's generally true. Like, you know, it, it burned through nursing homes. The at-risk population was the, was, the, was the demographic that was hit the hardest. Is that the number one pervasive theory, you think, for why New York is doing well now or is there are there other reasons you think that adds to that i mean i think i think it's it's one element in in an array of things i think the public the willingness to wear the masks for the most part again uh has been helpful and i think say it one more time so that every single listener (laughs) hears you well i yes i i I am unequivocally saying that masks 100 percent. it boggles my mind how just the the it's not even it's not even it's newtonian physics if you spit on someone it goes into their face no one should have the need to have that broken down for them but thank you for doing it anyway because it is it is mind-boggling yeah yeah you know one of the problems was that the surgeon general in the beginning was saying that masks were silly or or we didn't need to and i was confused at that because i've been I've, i've traveled the world i've been to asia where they wear them all the time even when there's not a pandemic so I'm like, are, and they seem to be smarter than us generally anyway. So I'm like, why, why is he saying that? And I think that was really 
where the, all the conspiracies started. Like, wait, you told us that they didn't do anything. Now you're telling us they do. I always had a theory from the beginning. And, and, and Andrew, let me know if this is something that's correct or incorrect. My theory from the very beginning was masks are important. Masks will help stop the spread of this disease. But we do not, we do not know if we have enough. And we do not know if we'll be able to keep our medical professionals safe. And if we, because everyone was buying everything, if you remember, toilet paper, which had absolutely nothing to do with this virus. People were buying it up. So if we announced back then that masks were important, the hospitals and medical professionals would have none. We'd have a severe shortage and they would be severely at risk. So when that flopped, it always meant to me that, okay, we have enough masks to go around now that we can keep everyone safe. And they're, they were always important, at least I believe. Yeah, no, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think, I, I believe maybe I, I, it was either he said it directly or it was an interpretation, but I think Fauci admitted as much that. He wanted to make sure that that uh, healthcare workers had access and people didn't start stockpiling them as they kind of did anyway. Yeah. See, you know, here's my good deed that you should know about for the year. That is, I'm so proud of myself for this one. We have we have an earthquake kit, as a lot of people in California tend to do, and we never have looked in it. You know, the last 15 years. So uh, we opened it see what was in there and we found two n95 masks so we drove them directly to the hospital and donated them as they told us we should do i'm, I'm an american hero that's you are you're a hero <laughs> that's you know what 7 p.m they're they're cheering for you um no yeah i ha- actually had a lot of friends uh contact me and offer donations of masks and and whatever equipment they had which was great and our hospital to be honest like we never really had any of the equipment shortcomings i think there were concerns about shortcomings, but uh, or shortfalls, I should say, in in um, equipment. But we never really felt it, and they actually, I mean, the the amount of multi use equipment that we got, like respirators, masks, uh, scrubs, and and shoes and things like that, was really amazing. So that was that was really helpful, and it actually and it, and it was really sort of encouraging to know that, despite sort of the the sometimes random decision making that we would sort of feel the tail end of it see we felt well protected you mentioned before uh your knowledge of the virus increasing during the time that you were treating it because of that knowledge are you do you feel that you you guys are getting better at treating it i would say that yeah to a, to a degree i mean i think a couple things have helped you know obviously our surge is over so we we are not as strapped for resources you know we have we have all the ventilators and 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 bipap machines we need i think we are we are we realized how aggressive we had to be sort of right out of the gate the cases that we saw the bad ones went from you know bad to really bad within a very short period of time so we realized that um in order to really get ahead of it we had to be as aggressive as possible so you know whether whether that was like anticipating the need for a ventilator early you know that was the biggest thing i mean obviously uh, breathing support is is the most important thing then we can get into things like steroids and and all the other stuff but that was really the thing that 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 is the thing that is going to help people who are uh very far gone thankfully also you know there was a lot of talk sort of leading up to it uh that we would get to the point where we would have to sort of decide who who gets a ventilator right uh, decide between the 50 year old with you know no medical problems or minimal medical problems versus the 90 year old um and have to make decisions like that and have to explain to the family why we had to make those decisions you know it didn't really come to that as much as we anticipated at least not in the er one of the things that we did notice you know we we obviously sort of kept very close communications with the the ICUs because it was just a you know constant circulation of patients the hospital at any given time has these overhead paging systems where they'll alert people to respiratory distress or cardiac arrest things like that and that was kind of in the background all the time so people people's status on the floor once they got admitted to the ICUs changed very abruptly there was a time where it was very hard to predict who was going to get better and who was going to get worse. We kind of did everything we could for everyone as aggressively as we could in order to optimize um, outcomes, but there was no real way to tell. What I want to do now is dispel some myths. You know, we live in a time where there are lots of conspiracy theories everywhere. 
a lot of misinformation. We're just going to fire these off, right? So are, are healthy people that are under 30 completely in the clear? No. Right. Okay. So you've seen younger people. You've, have you seen healthy, fit, young people under 30 who are in serious condition from this thing? Um, I've seen them get about as serious as you can get without necessarily needing intubation. But I've seen 30-year-olds, you know, 30-somethings in the hospital. Uh, a lot of my coworkers have had it and, you know, it's the, they, they made it through, you know, they were fine. Uh, and they spent most of the time at home. They didn't, I don't know if anyone in that age bracket really needed to be hospitalized, but they said it was the most miserable time of their life. Um, and then some of them, you know, I, even after the symptoms are gone, are still having trouble smelling and tasting and things like that. So not something you want to get. Yeah, absolutely. I've heard a lot of, or at least I've read a, a lot of things about this possibly being chronic in that way. And so, yeah, that's one of the things we really don't know is is what the lasting effects of it, you know, in terms of lung function, because it, it, it affects everything. So who knows? So you, you talked about this a little bit already. There's a lot of conspiracies about mask wearing to begin with, especially in this country. It just seems to be rampant. So you have actually right-wing uh, media outlets who have, reported on some of this stuff there is a new sort of a going theory that mask wearing can can occasionally cause more harm than good although let, let's make sure to note mr president donald trump was wearing a mask yeah 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 a day late and a dollar short buddy no i i guess someone i read an article recently about how keep the germs in there and get you sicker somehow or you know having a mask that has bacteria in it can get you sick my reaction is always like well people at hospitals wear masks all the time right and they <laughs> you're also allowed to wash your masks or, or wear a new one so on. i can't really fathom a, a response to that just because it's ridiculous i you know as far as like people people are concerned about co2 retention is one of the things i actually i, I actually the first day i wore a mask all day i i basically i kept a pulse ox on my finger just at thing that checks your oxygen saturation just because i was you know i was curious and it was fine you don't hear about a lot of surgeons passing out during surgery no it's no true. that's true that's true i've gotten my my work mask is well i have a couple of work masks but like a couple other disposable n95s but the one i use most of the time is uh you know plastic hard plastic respirator filters uh, i also have like a, a helmet thing that uh that pumps in yeah filtered air uh, which is great. It's actually like a little portable air conditioning system. But my sort of out and about town, like hanging out with my kids mask has, has defaulted to a bandana. And I like it because when I'm not wearing it, it's basically like I'm, I'm wearing an ascot without anybody knowing. <laughs> and uh, it makes me feel fancy. Yeah, yeah. No, I was, uh, I was rocking the bandana for the first couple of weeks before someone was like, maybe you should, you should, uh, you know, ratchet that up a little bit and go for the full real mask it's a good question actually i you know i've been freaked out to do something lighter because i see some people with that sort of neck scarf that they pull up and and the bandana but i've always been freaked out by either because i think they're like too thin so so the neck scarf is tricky because a lot of them are just single layer bandanas i mean just the way they're designed you you have to fold them so generally you're getting a two a two-layered thing which essentially all you know anybody who's sewing masks at home to donate it's generally, it's two pieces of tightly knit cotton fabric, which is what a bandana is. Um, you know, if I'm, if I'm particularly concerned, usually, I mean, it, it kind of comes down to my neck, so it's not like it's getting out underneath, but if, if there's any concern, I just tie a knot in the bottom and it basically becomes a full. Right. Now you live in the city now, right? I mean, not that Brooklyn was that much roomier or anything, but be, living in Manhattan, you're obviously, are, are you taking public transportation? No, I I, I've taken the train once as a matter of necessity. It wasn't that bad. I mean, it was before things really started to open up, so it was pretty quiet. But yeah, it was fine. I mean, I didn't. I tried my best not to touch anything. It wasn't crowded enough. I think you you sort of touched on this a little bit, but you didn't. We didn't get into the conspiracy part of this. This this is another question or another topic I see reported on right wing media a lot. There's this constant sort of drumbeat of everything is being overblown and exaggerated. I don't know why that's such a political thing, but you know, there's this new notion that hospitals are being encouraged to inflate the COVID numbers artificially and count every death as COVID just to hurt this administration. Not just 
for that reason, uh, Rob, but there's also a rumor going around that uh, hospitals are paid more for COVID patients and deaths than they are others. And so that has been touted in the news as well as a reason why the numbers have been inflated. Right. So, so as someone who works in a hospital, what do you have to say about that? I've seen more death these last few months than I've seen in the last few years. It's, uh, it's dismaying to hear these things. And it's also, I mean, these concerns or, or questions, I, I imagine, predated the current um, national situa- situation. So I think, I, I think the fact that a lot of people saw it going on in New York, I think it was our East Coast liberal elitism was, was, our, was the thing that was, what the virus was really grabbing onto. But if somebody comes in who le- legitimately is just having a heart attack, not COVID, do you, and he dies of the heart attack, you don't put that in the books as COVID? No. No, we test him for COVID. And honestly, like I said, we, the, the, the virus causes massive you know, inflammatory response. So that means strokes, blood clots in the lungs, blood clots in the brain, which is what a stroke is, uh, blood clots in the heart anywhere i mean that's the the virus causes these things in addition to the regular run-of-the-mill heart attacks that we get on a regular basis you could just answer this one with a yes or no because i know exactly what you're going to say but is this entire thing a liberal hoax no more dangerous than the flu i you know i i again i don't know what to say i think it i think it has a lot to do with where it started where it hit the ground first like people have a lot i i live in new york i'm in the, the new york bubble uh i I'm amazed at what I hear from the rest of the country. Sometimes I, I was talking to a, a coworker the other day, and his dad lives in Arizona, and he started quarantining from day one back in March. And for the longest time, you know, everybody was going about their business, but he was staying home and he was being, he was doing what he was supposed to do. And things were open, and people were not wearing masks. You know, he started hearing about the numbers kind of going down because New York was improving. And he's like, okay, I can get back to normal. And then the surge came. So he's got to stay in again. Now. That was the problem is, is I, I was in Arizona during that time quarantining. And it only fed that narrative of, oh, this isn't anything. And the people that didn't think it was anything, they were like, what am I quarantining from? They all went out and now we have what we have. So I think, that, that, I think that was a big part of it. I think is that, it, you know, there was a delay and, and... It also that it came from China, which is a communist country. And so... I think people are very, very skeptical about information that's coming from that government. They are skeptical about the WHO organization. All of that plays into the CDC. You know, there, there's just an attack on our institutions to begin with. And I think, I think more, more than the, the virus itself, I think more the, the fact that the economy was doing so poorly, like people were losing their jobs in places not affected by the virus. Just there's a total disconnect. Like why, you know, New York is doing this to us. Why are you doing this to us? We're not going to allow it. And then, and you know, you go on business as usual, and then then you end up like New York. So, so finally, in this segment, uh, how easily can one pick up the virus from inanimate objects like doorknobs or elevator buttons? I don't know if you actually know this for sure, but give me your best guess. So, different materials are considered more likely or less likely to hold on to the virus. So like, I think on, on metals, it can last for a couple days. So doorknobs specifically, I think five, four or five days, it's different for everything, but there are some like, uh, well, not, I shouldn't say all metals. Copper, I think is only a couple hours because it's a more sort of, uh, active metal. Three to five days is sort of the average for your just, you know, the stuff around us. Okay. So, so Lysoling my groceries is not an insane thing to be doing. Let's say no. I, I, do, I mean, I still wipe everything down, uh, just, you know, for safety's sake. Just because recently there's been a lot of talk about the aerosolation, if that's even a word, of the virus versus the, you know, the virus being in droplets as originally thought out. And I think it was the WHO that, that changed the sort of the thinking on this. And I'm not sure, as with everything else, who knows what's true and what isn't, but I would love to hear your opinion on it. Yes, I, I've heard both of these things and I, I don't have a, you know, I'm, I'm not an infectious disease specialist or an epidemiologist, but from day one, we kind of, we kind of treated it as a airborne. Well, so aerosolized is actually is technically still sort of like droplet it's basically like micro droplets yeah so airborne would be the alternate possibility or the the more concerning possibility where the 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 virus itself without being in a droplet can just exist in the air honestly i don't i i really don't know one way or the other i haven't uh, read the latest on that 
last thing I read was what you did, that the CDC was concerned that this is a possibility. Can you say anything about whether this thing, uh, the viral load situation that we've heard about, like if you're exposed to it all day, like you guys are, versus if you just walk by somebody on the street, does that make a difference? I, you know, and honestly, I don't know. I mean, I, in general, the numbers among healthcare workers have been a lot lower just because we do practice uh, much more extensive uh, personal protection. So that's sort of a, a confounding factor, I would say. I haven't been tested in a while, but I've never demonstrated any symptoms. Could you have an asymptomatic case? Like, uh, you know, we hear now that Fauci said the other day that up to 50% could be asymptomatic. That's, That's certainly That's possible. a massive number. The other, yeah. the other question, though, is, is, and the quality, again, the quality of the tests have become better and better, but false positives and false negatives are always a possibility. So people, asymptomatic people having a false positive is an issue to consider. Um, symptomatic people with false negatives is an issue to consider. Operator, they're operator dependent, right? You need to get a really good swab in order to to make sure that you're maximizing your chances of of catching something to culture. That's why they're they're hitting they're hitting your brain when they go. Yeah, up they there. have to tickle yeah. your brain. I don't know where where that exists compared to the or as as it relates to the asymptomatic carriers. I I just assume, and this is it's along the lines of you know how we treat it in the hospital. We assume everybody has it. We assume anybody with any sort of symptoms have it. We assume anybody that's been in contact with anybody with any sort of symptoms has it. Uh, and we, you know, we, we take precautions appropriately. You know, I think this is a really serious concern uh, throughout the country. Where do you stand on getting kids back to school? In the fall? I mean, I think this is the biggest uh, concern because it basically, it, it, it's giving us an idea of, of where we stand in terms of our value as uh, parents versus our value as employees. It, it would be nice, and and I think when I when I say that, I think primarily I'm thinking about the kids. I mean, socializing and 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 having like face to face interactions, I think, is probably the thing that is most harmful to them, or lack of that is most harmful to them at this point uh, for development. The only plans I've I've heard thus far are just I'm going to try it, see see if it works. And, uh, you know, maybe it works and maybe it doesn't. And then we're back to square one. So, I mean, we've been anticipating a second surge forever. And I think, you know, I was, I was sort of talking to some coworkers and we were saying, you know, July might be a real sort of uh, litmus test because we're having, you know, the demonstrations and uh, people are getting a little more lax when it comes to like the holiday weekends. So if we don't see anything by the end of July, you know, it's a pretty good chance that the worst is over, at least in New York. But I think now the real test is going to be school. For the gears of that institution to have to start up and then slow, then stop again, is just going to be a major headache. And and I get I get why teachers are concerned, and you know they didn't sign up for putting themselves in this kind of risk. They're ready for mass shooting situations, but not. Uh... If, if this is as, you know, not harmful to kids as they are saying, I guess I heard a statistically that kids under 12 actually have greater chance of dying of seasonal flu. So it's not necessarily the kids. It's who they go home to. Right. And so many kids live with their grandparents and. You know, I don't want to get this thing from my kids and kids give you everything, as you know, when you have kids. So I thought like if there was a way, though, that we could get them in school and get them get like a 20 year old proctor and then the teacher could zoom in so that she's not or he or she is not putting their lives at risk. But then it still doesn't solve the idea of when they go home. Exactly. I mean, that's that's the issue. Is it like and that's the issue with like every 20 and 30 something that's that's walking around without a mask on. It's like I don't care about them because they're they're going to be fine for the most part unless they have underlying stuff but they're interacting with their parents and grandparents and you know they're the little old lady that lives next door i mean it's it's uh it's really this is like this is the the whole thing is that it's not about you and that is the thing that people are not getting although i have seen um i read an article from australia that was saying that they couldn't identify one case that was transmitted to an adult from a child but it, it's so, the statistics are so sketchy still. We just don't know enough, right? Yeah, I mean, how do, how do we know? And they're, they're upside down. Right. Yeah, it's true. They are upside down. They read the chart. They read the, the graph wrong. Yeah. <laughs> 
So an Israeli scientist wrote an article that was mentioned in The Atlantic about just over a month ago, proposing what he called the controlled avalanche strategy, providing fighting the virus, controlled av avalanche in quotes for those listeners out there. Can't see me. The idea is that we would stringently isolate the elderly and then not only ask those under 35 to reenter the workforce, but actually encourage them to mingle and contract the virus purposely. The idea is that this would be this would bring us closer to herd immunity. What do you think about the uh, about this proposed strategy? I mean, it's you know, it's it's a strategy. It's uh, it could theoretically go a long way towards getting people immunized. However, I would say we still don't know 100% what being immunized means, whether it, uh, it's, a, it's a lasting state, whether it gives you a couple months of protection. Uh, it's not, it, you know, it, it seems like this, the virus has been uh, somewhat, whether you want to say mutating or, or variant in its, uh, in its uh, presentations is, is another thing. Like, you know, uh, if it's mutating, it doesn't really matter if you're immune to the prior iteration of it. You know, I think it's reasonable to try to come up with solutions. And I think from a historical perspective, you know, with the flu and with the, you know, just seasonal viral syndromes, it's a reasonable extrapolation. Well, I, I don't know. I, we don't know enough about this thing. It just, it seems to be, I mean, it's a, it's a son of a bitch. It's just like every turn, it just gets worse in, in, in one way or the other, you know, every, every new piece of information we, uh, we get just seems to make it more tenacious, uh, and, and, uh, and just more concerning about, about what it means to fight it. You know, whether a vaccine comes along in the fall or the winter, that would be great. But if it's going to be the right strain, that's a question. If people are going to take it, ugh, I can't believe that's a fucking issue. Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, it's a, I think of, of it's, a, it's a reasonable uh, question to raise. It's, it could work, but honestly, we don't know enough. Yeah. And if you look at the Swedish, because Sweden essentially did this. In fact, they, didn't, they were the one country that didn't close down at all. Uh, it's been a failure because they have more deaths per capita than any other country in Europe, and their economy has suffered just as much. So it didn't even do what it was intended because you can't work if you're dead. Isn't that right, Andrew? I mean, it depends on what you do. There are CPAs that are practical. Well, they say Joe Biden is practically dead. We've all seen Weekend at Bernie's. We've heard a lot from the, both sides. Uh, there's a, a, a pretty severe argument going on about the mortality rate and what it means. What should we be looking at in terms of real statistics regarding mortality rate? There's a bit of a variability. It sounds like generally it's accepted by the CDC and, and the WHO that the case fatality rate is somewhere around like 0.4 to 0.6. So it's less than 1% uh, is what, you know, is the consideration that, that most people are going with now, which, you know, I don't know if you still, if you extrapolated for the entire world's population that's it's still a lot of people and even for you know the u.s like it's it's a lot of people you know it's not quite spanish flu numbers uh yet that was i think five percent of the world's population died uh in the spanish flu there was a lot less science back then there were a lot less people too so like the the, the rate of transmission i mean it was it was really it was directly related to people coming back from world war one and and kind of dispersing throughout the uh the world yeah so i think that's where we're at right now again tracing and, and testing and and all of it is going to just improve those numbers over time and i think we're we're only just now really realizing how important those things are despite it being beaten into our heads for the last four plus months so hopefully you know the more we test the more we know and like you said the more we know who is actually dying of COVID and, and, and cause you know, there's still other stuff to die from. So yeah, before we get into some political questions, um, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but there have been many theories about, uh, how this thing will end. Some people have said the vaccine is going to come and that's going to be it. Some people, I've, I've heard some people say that it could just burn itself out as viruses have done throughout history. Like it just, they, it gets weaker and eventually just goes away. Uh, and I've heard others well, definitely know it's not going to be the heat, the summer heat. It's not going to be the summer heat. It hasn't no. been. Uh, yeah. 
But there's another theory I'm, that I'm praying uh, on the cold, but we don't get that anymore. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's another theory that uh, there could uh, it could just basically be absorbed into seasonal viruses, and we're stuck with it forever, and we just have to learn to live with it. And that this whole quote new normal thing is literally the rest of our lives. Now that to me is so unthinkable that it makes me want to hang myself. But again, without having a crystal ball, what do you think the most likely scenario for how this ends is? I, I think the new normal is probably the closest uh, to to what we're going to have to expect for the at least the next couple of years. I mean, I you know uh, that's just my opinion, but I mean, based on everything I've seen, like it's just it, it is going to get folded into all of the you know usual seasonal viral syndromes, but it's it's just so much more aggressive than those things. I mean, flu being what it is, you know, there's been a lot made of how many people die a year from flu. That many people plus the 130,000 that have died so far in the U.S. from this, it's, you know, it's, it's what, twice at this point? My assumption is that the masks are not going to go away um, I think we're going to come sort to some sort of middle ground when it comes to social distancing and 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 business. I don't know how our current like you know I don't know how restaurants are going to work. Yeah, I mean all of it and 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 concerts. I mean, look at you guys. You have to become podcasters for God's I sake. I know it, it's true. It's true. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I I think I think masks are going to stick with us for a while. I think uh, you know it's just going to become you know. 100 years ago nobody wore shirts with collars they had to add the collar but now the shirts come with collars so now we're just gonna have a mask at, so, at some point there wasn't a flu vaccine that's right? true and it was it was the same story i'm at, sure at one point there wasn't any vaccine. now you know obviously the anti-vaxxers are going to be all over this thing not, not for long the vaccine comes out right <laughs> um but you know there is something to be said i've had some intelligent friends like not stupid friends who have said like you know if they're gonna rush this thing how many times are you watching tv and you see like a class action lawsuit for something that they thought was safe 10 years ago and finds out it caused dude is that we you and i were both taking zantac right it exactly. happened in this yep. year yep and we had to stop taking it because it caused cancer apparently right um so you know i do worry that if the vaccine comes out what I think is that that's going to be the government's way of saying, all right, we're done. Right, we Go back to work. If you don't want to take it, that's up to you. But if you do want to take it, it's it's here for you. Yeah, but uh, yeah, okay. That's that's one way of looking at it. And that's true. I mean, it's it's going to be there and it's going to, it's not going to be a hundred percent and it's going to have side effects, but that's kind of the, the, you know, the game of big pharma in general. I mean, they do that with every medication they have, like everything gets rushed. Uh, you know, they've, 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 spent their entire existence since what the thirties or say the twenties finding, you know, figure out ways to bypass the FDA or, or, you know, bake into the FDA fast tracking and all that stuff. So that's, I mean, that's nothing new. Uh, I think, I think the, the notion that it's going to be a mandate is, is something that that's worth thinking twice about. It also, it also depends on how they're, how they're testing, like, you know, whether or not they're, they're going through, appropriate means and it's hard to say who uh who's doing things right nowadays especially with something like this where there's a ton of money to be made from you know despite the fact that they're publicly funded a lot of these trials from you know charging three thousand dollars a pop for for a vaccination um and i guess the likely outcome is that we're going to find out after the fact whether or not it actually worked or not but I mean, I, I think if I if it came to I I I take it, I'd probably I'd probably wait, uh, maybe to give it to my kids because again, they seem to be less affected by it. To get to the one political question we kind of had here is how do you feel generally about the federal response to COVID, and then the same question about your state, New York State, and how they've handled this thing from the beginning. So state, you know, it's it got it got there, I guess eventually. I think Cuomo didn't could have responded faster. I think he was getting a lot of worthwhile information or, or just modeling from uh, San Francisco. They, they seemed to realize that it was, was going to be an issue before 
it actually presented itself um and they took necessary measures and i think uh new york there was probably about a two-week period where san francisco was ramping up and and cuomo and blasio didn't really see the need to uh to act in kind and then when things started happening you know they i guess mobilized and since then i mean i think if anything cuomo's sort of tough guy demeanor has his his uh his daily press briefings have been helpful uh in that they drive certain points home about mask wearing and things like that the bickering between de blasio and uh cuomo has not been terribly uplifting so you know it 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 kind of has fits and starts of of of, uh helpfulness uh and then it, it sort of falls short again so I, you know, I think I think we've we've gotten to the point, you know, and the numbers are going down, and whether or not that's that's you know fully a, a result of the state government's response, uh, and you know the trickle down into uh, uh, the mayor and, and the boroughs and the hospitals and and you know people kind of doing their share, I, you know, I, I'd like to give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, you know, there's still a lot of things that. Uh, I'm not crazy about when it comes to Cuomo, um, but he, well, he was also he's been taking a lot of a lot of hits for pumping old people back into nursing homes in the beginning. Yeah, yeah, that uh, that doesn't help, right? Um, I think you know, but I, I think as far as uh, leadership figures, he he uh, comparatively uh, cut a better image than than uh, the federal government. The the only real player as it comes uh, when it comes to the federal government is is fauci and then he just got undercut at every turn by uh by everybody else um to the point where it's, i i wouldn't call it a response at all other than like fingers in the ears la 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 i can't hear you yeah so i you know i don't know what to say about that like there's there's really nothing that i could say that is, hasn't been said already i just uh it's it's just it's an, is it he's, enraging he's, to you though, because you're on the front lines of this whole thing, or at least were? Right, but this is—I mean, this is what I expected from day one. Like, I didn't expect anything from him. He was—he's not. Gonna, there's no occasion that he could possibly rise to. So, shifting away from the COVID talk, uh, on our episode this week, we spoke on the American healthcare system. Uh, what did you generally think about Obamacare, and did you think that it negatively or positively affected your ability to give care? The the environment that I work in is sort of a. <sighs> sort of a different case because you know the, the the rules that we have in the er essentially state that we can't and we and i work for you know i don't work for private hospitals so i i there's no one we can turn away there's no one we can deny care so you know i wasn't limited in any way uh before obamacare i wasn't limited in any way after obamacare i uh the down the line you know downstream from the er Obviously, things uh, probably changed for better or worse for a lot of people. I think the idea of, of getting more people covered uh, is certainly where we want to be. You know, the 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 issue that people had with the mandate was kind of uh, confounding because it's essentially, I mean, that's what insurance is. Like the the whole reason insurance works is that the healthy people subsidize the costs of the sick people. That's always been the way it is. Uh, so to have that be the sticking point was very frustrating. Um, I mean, I think again, I think if 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 there's any, I think if there's any chance of of true equity, you know, I, I think I think we have we have had opportunities uh, for years, for decades. I mean, uh, to to create a single payer system. Um, and we've failed every time because of the interests of of industry, right? So, like you know, after World War II, like Germany has a great nationalized healthcare plan or uh, healthcare system, and Japan has a great nationalized healthcare system because we created it for them. Uh, you know, that was the, that was the Marshall Plan that we we basically created the the, the framework for their healthcare state, and uh, and you know it's 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 doing pretty well and and the thing that caught us was that you know lobbyists and 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 
industry uh, sort of got in the way and put put profit over well-being. And I think that I mean that's always been the case. Um, so the I think single payer. I don't know. It has it has to be the way. I think if we have any hope of surviving as a country, these are the things that has to, that have to be done. Um, and I think I think. Um, the the tip the we're at the tipping point where um, corporate interest has gotten so uh, such special treatment that you know we I think people are realizing that you know to be an American is more to be able to contribute in capitalism in as much as you get to give your money to people so that you can sort of have a place to live and like get to drive around in a car and get food to eat, but that's it. Like you don't get to contribute more than that. You don't get to, you know, unless you are an elite few and certainly people, you know, there is some social mobility, but in general, unless you're part of this elite cast, you're, you're done. I mean, you, you get to where you're at and then you just, do it over and over again until you die. There are exceptions. There are exceptions, but I see what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, I mean, there are always yeah. going to be exceptions, but um, right. but I think in general, like the system is, you know, we capitalism needs a a strata of people to capitalize on, and I think you know nine, the ninety nine percent of Americans that are rallying against the one part that are basically the mice that that you know get all of the good and bad drugs all right we're going to pause our interview right there there's lots more to come we have a part two that we'll be releasing very shortly so we hope you like the interview and we'll have more for you soon don't forget to rate review and subscribe don't forget to rate review and subscribe and we'll uh catch you next week thanks for listening bye